The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Well, I think it's such a joy for us today to be in one of the most well-known and rightly well-loved passages of the entire Bible. So John 3. If you're paying very, very careful attention, you would note that the last time I preached, we finished John chapter 2, and yet today we're finishing, or we're continuing in John 3, verse 16. So you might ask, what about 3, 1 through 15? And it's amazing to think that it was just two years ago that we were outside, and I preached through John 3, 1 through 15, titling the sermon Rebirth, and we dropped that sermon into our playlist on John, on our YouTube channel and on our sermon, so you can catch up with it there. I still believe everything I said then, (laughs) so that's why it's all still there in that same spot. But given you what you would need to know from John 3, 1 through 15 for today, here is the bottom line of it. Nicodemus, a man who is religiously devoted, devout, and sincere, is told something shocking by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's told that Nicodemus doesn't need a slight tweak or a slight improvement. He needs to be completely born again. And he he needs to be born again by God the Spirit. At the end of that conversation, in verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, this is something that happened in the book of Numbers, where God's people had a plague because of sin, and they had to look in faith to a substitute who would rescue them. In the same way, verse 15, will the Son of Man be lifted up? And that would lead anybody to this question. Why would God care to save this group of people who have rejected him? And that is the context of John 3, verse 16. And that is why John three sixteen begins with the word for. Why would God do this? Because God so loved the world. So this morning, as we look at John 3, verse 16, we look at perhaps the most well-known verse and well-loved verse in the Bible, and rightly so. And as we read it, we'll also see the verses that follow it, verse 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. And in this paragraph, we'll notice God's saving love in verse 16. Then we'll see God's saving purpose in verse 17. But then in 18 through 21, we'll see Stark differences in the way mankind has responded to or rejected God's saving love. In fact, this paragraph is a paragraph of contrast. God's love for the world is contrasted, sadly, by the world's hatred for God. And even among humanity, there is diametrically divergent response to the Son of God. Those who receive, those who reject Those who believe, those who refuse, those who will come to the light, and those who love darkness rather than the light. So in this well-known passage, we'll see God's saving love and his saving purpose, but we'll see the divergence to receiving or rejecting God's love. So let's look now in John 3, verse 16, one of the most well-known and well-loved verses of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I just want to draw out a few things about God's love from John 3, verse 16. The first thing I'd want to draw out is that God's love is shocking because of who he loves. It's shocking because God so loved 
the world. If you're familiar with the Bible, you see how shocking this is. This is the world in revolt against its creator. This is the world that created the Tower of Babel to make a name for itself. This is the world who killed the prophets who opposed God at every possible turn. In John's gospel, the word world will be used pejoratively, negatively throughout the book. But if this helps, maybe it helps to think of it this way. If two people have been dating for a while in our current time and space, and they're getting to that point where they're ready to say the word love, they're at that point because they now think that that other person has so many qualities that they find attractive. Because I enjoy this about you and this about you and this about you and this about you, I am now ready to say, I love you. Now contrast that with this. Imagine parents who have raised a child and this child for the large portion of their life has opposed and undercut and made difficult the lives of their parents. They have bankrupted them. They have been abusive perhaps to their spouse They have profaned everything about this family and made it very, very difficult. If the parent says and means to that child, I love you, they're not referring to anything attractive or compelling about them. In John 3.16, the shock is that God loves the world that has rejected him. God loves the world that is in revolt against him. God's love is shocking because of who he loves Charles Spurgeon was speaking on John 3.16 in London in the 1800s and said this, What was there in the world that God should love it? There was nothing lovable in it. No fragrant flower grew in that arid desert. Enmity to him, hatred to his truth, disregard of his law, rebellion against his commandments. Whence then came that love? Not from anything outside of God. God's love springs from his self. God loves because it is his nature to do so. God so loved the world. So as I've said it before, God loves the world not because we are so lovely, but because he is so loving. The shock is not that the world is so big, but that the world is so bad. And yet God loves the world. That's actually really good news for this reason. I can be assured that no matter who I am today, what I've done, or how far from God I feel, God is willing to love a person like me. Because if God loves the world, a world in revolt, God can love any individual, no matter how far we feel we've gone from his love. All right, the second thing about God's love from John 3.16. First, it's shocking because of who he loves. But second, it's shocking because of how he loves. And that's the next phrase. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's love is shocking, not just because of who he loves, but because of how he loves. He loves in this way that he gave his only son. This is love that spares nothing. When we love, we might withhold a part. When we give, we might keep a bit. God is giving all. He's giving himself. He's giving his best. He's giving his one-of-a-kind son. I'll quote Spurgeon one more time. Same sermon from the 1800s, speaking to an English audience He said this, Dear sirs, I understand you may be giving your children to go to India on Her Majesty's service, and I can well comprehend you're yielding them up even with the fear of the climate and the death they may face in an honorable and glorious cause. But could you think of parting with them to die a felon's death 
executed by those they sought to bless, stripped naked in body and deserted in mind. Would that not be too much? Wouldn't you say, I cannot part with my son for such wretches as these? We think of giving our children maybe to an honorable cause. God gave his son to be numbered with criminals and crucified among transgressors. God's love is shocking because of how he loves. But a third thing, and this is how the text ends, not only is it shocking that God so loved the world, it's also shocking that God so gave his only son. But third, it's shocking that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is why we say that the gospel is good news. The Bible calls this description of God's love for the world the gospel, and news is something that someone else has accomplished. News invites a response, surely. You can receive it or reject it, but it's the record of what someone else has done. This text tells us that if we believe in him, we will not perish, but have eternal life. How long does eternal life last? Forever. This means that the completion with which God has loved us will not fail. Friend, I hope you know what a blessing it is to have eternal life. When we're standing at a graveside here, we remember eternal life. When we're parting with those that we've known, we remember eternal life. All of the things that seem temporary are overcome by the life that rests forever. As long as there is a God in heaven, there is eternal life. As long as there is Christ, he is yours. As long as there is heaven, it is our inheritance. Eternal life is forever a possession of Christ full love. So John 3.16 tells us that God's saving love is shocking because of who he loves. It's shocking because of how he loves. And it's shocking that his love is complete and yet simply received, not by something we've done, but by believing in his son. And now verse 17 wants us to see God's saving purpose. So verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This lets us know that God's purpose was not to bring condemnation because we had already condemned ourselves in Adam when we rejected our creator. Condemnation was already the world's state. Of course, Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save the condemned out of our condemnation. Like a fireman, who goes into a building that's already on fire. His purpose can only be to rescue those who are already condemned. Or a mediator who may arbitrate for an offender who has already been sentenced. Their purpose can only be to deliver someone who is already under condemnation. The condemnation occurred by us, the offenders, but now the deliverer has arrived. So God's saving purpose is to rescue the condemned. So friend, here's what I'd want you to notice right here in verse 17. God's purpose is to save. Are you willing to receive his savior? God loves the world. He sent his son to save us out of the world. All we do is believe in him so that we would not perish. But that makes verses 18 through 21 so surprising and so sad. Because verses 18 through 21 indicate that though God loves the world and sent his son not to condemn, but to save the condemned, 
many in the world reject God's love. And here we see two diametrically opposed directions in verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. Those are all split on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say so we don't miss this. That is always the dividing line, the Lord Jesus Christ. How you respond to him is always the dividing line. So verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's incredible because verse 17 said, we're all condemned, but if I believe in him, I'm no longer condemned. I'm rescued from condemnation. This tells us then an amazing truth of how we are saved. And please see in verse 18, what is the access of our salvation? The answer is believing. Believing, saving faith is acknowledging who Jesus Christ is, trusting that I need him, but then giving myself to him as I receive and rest on him. What is saving faith? Spurgeon answers, it is to trust yourself with Jesus. What is saving faith? Jonathan Edwards put it this way. It is the soul's entirely embracing the revelation of Jesus Christ as Savior. Let me add a few more things on saving faith to make it clear. Saving faith is not a blind leap in the dark because it is based on convicting truth. But it is also not omniscience of all knowledge. It includes evidence of things not yet seen. Faith is not an achievement. It is resting in somebody else's achievement. Faith is not a fresh start. It's not a New Year's resolution. It is trust in somebody else's completion. Faith, then, is not trying, but trusting. Faith is an instrument. Therefore, it is only as good as its object. That's why I like to think about it this way. I like to think about saving faith as a straw. A straw only is as good as the drink you put it in. And by the way, if you walk around with just a straw and never put it in anything, you're weird. (laughs) So if you're putting faith in your faith, that makes no sense. I mean, think about that. Oh, I have faith in my faith. Why? It's not access to anything. Faith is only as good as its object. Put faith in the right cup, you have something. Put it in the wrong cup, you have poison. Faith is only as good as its object. Believe in him. Not in your belief in him. Believe in him and what he has done. By the way, did you know that in the Bible, that's why the Bible does not talk about something you have done in the past as the reason you're saved. It never does that. It never says, did you make that decision? Did you walk that aisle? Did you come down and sign that card? Because it's not about what you have done. Uh, maybe this will help. We have five children now, and so it's changed our parenting a lot. But when we just had our one child, we were very careful, cautious parents. You know? Now that we have our fifth, it's like, what is Benjamin drinking? That's cleaning fluid. And he's probably thirsty. You know? we don't, we're not as good as we once were. When we just had the one, we were so cautious and careful. I remember when we took Evangeline home, we were so afraid that in the middle of the night to make sure she was still alive, you know, we just couldn't sleep through the night. Is our newborn okay? Is she all right? And you know what? We never did once, never once did I go find the safe and pull out her birth certificate. Oh, that must be proof that she's alive. 
Never, never did I call the hospital where she was born and say, do you have a record that she was born on this date? At this? I never did that. We went into her room and found out if she was breathing. So friend, it, it is not, did you do this thing 15 years ago? Did you accomplish this deed uh, when you were seven years old? No, it's do you have Jesus? That is what saving faith is, believing in him. Now, if we don't have Jesus, I have to show you how serious that is. So look at the end of verse 18. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Look how serious this verse is. Who is condemned? Anyone who does not believe in Jesus. When are they condemned? Already. Why are they condemned? Because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, this is paralleling the word perish in verse 16. Perishing is the most sobering word I could bring up. The eternal condemnation and suffering that is self-inflicted, self-caused, and self-perpetuated by rejecting the Savior, the only Son of God. Now, how are they condemned already, you might ask? I tried to hint at this earlier. We're condemned from birth. We are shaped in iniquity and in sin did our mother conceive us. We are condemned since Adam and Eve have rejected God. We are fallen and cursed as a human race. We are already condemned. So we're condemned already, of course, if we reject the only Savior. Our condition is already condemned. But that condition, as the Bible makes clear, will get far worse after this life. Just as the moment you come to know Christ, you're saved, and yet the full glory of your salvation is eternal. So from the moment we reject God, our condemnation has begun, and yet its full bloom is eternal. I don't want you to think I'm making this up. In John 3, look down at verse 36, okay? So that you see from the Bible that there is wrath today that will bloom into eternal death. So John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him now. So there's wrath today, and there's eternal death and isolation from God forever. I know these are sobering things, but God is telling us this so that we will be moved to his Son so that we will move from condemnation to salvation. And there is no other way. Do you notice how clear verse 18 is? There's the not condemned and the condemned, and there's no third option. There's no Switzerland. There's no indifferent third party. Everybody's either rescued through Christ or under wrath through rejection. Nobody's neutral in the way they hear or respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why verse 19 will now start to get to the heart reasons why people reject Jesus. I mean, if Jesus is salvation, why would anyone reject him? And now verse 19 and 20 tells us why. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. I, I, I prefer the word verdict. This is the final verdict or analysis. The light, 
And please picture the word or the letter L capitalized because this light is Jesus Christ as the NASB rightly capitalizes the L. The light, Jesus, has come into the world. Now, if you've been here since John 1, you know that John 1 has a table of contents, a prologue, verses 1 through 18, and they indicate things that are going to be picked up later. And one of them is in John 1, 9 through 11. The light has come into the world. He gave light to everyone. All right, so no one can say, I have no light. I have no clue that there is a Savior. I have no clue that there is a creator. Yes, everyone has revelation that there is the light, that he is our creator. Jesus Christ is our Lord. This is the point of John 1, 9 through 11. Jesus Christ, the true light, is the source radiating his revelatory truth. But now back to our verse, verse 19 of chapter 3. Though the light has come into the world, and everybody has that light in some measure, yet verse 19 says, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Please just see what God is telling us. Why are people rejecting Jesus? Verse 19 says, because they love something else more. They love darkness more than the light. I'd rather give my trust and my confidence and my soul and my embrace to something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This reminds us that no one ever rejects Jesus at a purely academic level. There's always a moral component to man's rejection of Jesus. It includes something else we want more, something else we wish to be true instead of him. I know some of you work in the law. Some of you have served as judges. If a case comes across your courtroom when you are a judge and it involves a company that you have personally invested in, you would recuse yourself because how you would rule on that case would profoundly impact your own fortunes. But friend, here is the one judgment that impacts us all eternally, and none of us can recuse ourselves. The reality is we all are biased, and we might actually suppress our bias into a blind spot. When people reject Jesus, though, it's not because there isn't enough evidence It's not because they find him academically incredible. It's because morally they prefer darkness over the light. The fear behind that love is now pressed out at the end of verse 19. Loving darkness rather than light is happening because of something underneath that, because their works were evil. The fear of the light is that it would expose us for what we are. Look at the end of verse 20, or let's continue in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I apologize for the gross image, but if you've ever been walking in the woods on a sunny day and there's a fallen tree trunk or a log and you're able to kick it over, the light hits all of these bugs and they scatter immediately. The light causes them to flee for exposure. 
This is the image used in verse 20. People fear coming to Jesus Christ because of an exposure of what we truly are. By the way, I want you to remember who he was talking to preceding in John 3. He was talking to a very respected, religious, devout leader named Nicodemus. I want that to be clear because our wickedness comes in every form and style. Pastors, priests, serial killers, drug dealers, molesters, businessmen, humanitarians, politicians, social workers, volunteers, teachers, doctors, influencers, all of us, whatever our social appearance, are seen for what we are when we come to the light. And the light may cause us to be afraid. If you're at the the doctor's and you receive an MRI or an X-ray, a scan of incredible light that shows truth that was otherwise hidden, and the scan reveals spots on one of your key organs, there would be two bad ways that you could respond to that. One of the ways you could respond is you could pretend, well, they just must be wrong. I don't care what they say. I don't have any spots. I don't have any spots at all. Who cares what the scan says? I'll just keep living and people will think that I'm fine. This is man-made religion. There's another common way to respond, and that is to prance out of there and say, yeah, they're right. I have spots, but who cares? I'm going to be true to myself and live my life. This is irreligion. Neither fixes the problem. The scan has showed that we have a sin problem, so what is the solution? to believe in a Savior who takes away our spots, to trust in a Son who removes our sin, to be willing to come and admit, yes, I do need Jesus, but I know that he will take my sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west. This week, I read about a student at the University of Pennsylvania, and she has been studying religion, and so she came across the Bible. She said this about the Bible, I can accept Jesus as a historical person. I can accept him as a stalwart example. And I can accept the historicity of Scripture. But I cannot accept this business about needing Jesus Christ. I will not admit my need of him to be my Savior. This is exactly the issue. In John 5, just two chapters later, Jesus will tell the Pharisees, you search the scriptures. You think in them you have eternal life, but you refuse to come to me. See, the issue always is how I will respond to Jesus Christ. Remember, the text says that by rejecting Jesus, it actually only cements the fact that we're condemned already. In Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, Crime and Punishment, a young Russian student murders an elderly pawnbroker. He reasons no one cares about this pawnbroker. His loss won't be felt by anybody else. And so it's really no big deal if I take his life and inherit his fortune. After murdering the pawnbroker, the young student thinks that he has entered into a life of prosperity. But little does he know that from the moment he murdered that pawnbroker, he was condemned already. And the book then unfolds the punishment and the chastisement and the accrued condemnation that unfolds over a lifetime until it culminates. Friends, our condemnation is universal. The solution is singular. Jesus is the only way out. 
So receive him. Verse 21 humbles us and amazes us in how we are rescued. Verse 21 says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. A few things I think I need to help us with. One is there's a Semitic phrase, whoever does what is true, that's very unhelpful for our English ears. It's an idiomatic way of saying, do the right thing. So it's not saying, do a work. That's not what the text is saying. It's not saying, if you do a work, you get to come to the light. No, no, it's saying the right path is to come to the light. And those who are on that right path, notice how verse 21 ends, are on that path because God has brought them there. These works have been carried out in God. The text is telling us that we are only brought to the light by the grace of God. In fact, even our English translations wrestle with this. If you have the New International Version in front of you, it says this, so that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So the NIV is translating that movement to the light is just done in God's vision, his purview. But all the other English translations rightly translate Those who come to the light, as the CSB puts it, have come to the light to show that it was accomplished by God. Being brought to the light is a work of God's grace. So what do we do with a passage like this one? And I want to give you a few ways that we could respond. Here's the first and most important one by far. First, come to Jesus. Believe in him. Come to the light. Realize that we're condemned already unless we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe in him. Our believing in him is not a work of righteousness which we have done, but a grace of God's mercy that has brought us to himself where we just have Jesus and he is ours and we are his forever. Come to Jesus. Put your hope in him. Put your trust in him. Give your soul to him. Give your all to him. And he will save you from the perishing that we all deserve. Here's a second application for those of you who are believers. You say, yes, I I have Jesus. He is mine. Praise the Lord. But what does John 3.16 mean for me now? And here's the short answer. John 3.16, here's why it's so well-loved and so important. Every single ethical instruction that comes everywhere else in the Bible is founded on this verse. All of them are. Here's how I wrote it. God's saving love is the empowering ground of all true virtue. Let me give a couple examples of that. When we struggle with anxiety, I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if he's for me. I don't know if he brought me into this situation just so that I would fail. How does the Bible answer that? It takes us back to the fact that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Think of Romans 8. It says this in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things. It's telling us the reason you shouldn't be mired in anxiety is because you should have assurance that God loves you since he sent his son for you. All right, let's use another category. How about bitterness? Somebody has genuinely sinned against you. They have wronged you. They have hurt you. They have harmed you. How are you going to respond? Well, if we only love those who are lovely... Then if I can paraphrase Jesus, whoop-de-doo. Everybody loves those who are lovely. That's easy. But to love those who have wronged us requires us to go back to John 3, 16. Who did God love? He loved the world. 
This is why Ephesians 4 verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. In fact, even the very orientation of my soul from self-centeredness to unselfishness depends on John 3.16. John, who was used by God to write this gospel, also wrote three letters to the church. And in 1 John chapter 4, he makes this very argument. God sent his only son into the world, this is 1 John 4, verse 9, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, so ought we also love one another. The move from selfishness to consideration of our brothers and sisters depends on John three sixteen. In fact, the move from selfishness in the way we live to concern about the spirituality of people around us depends on John 3.16. Later in John's gospel, in John chapter 15, Jesus will talk about sending his disciples. In John 17 verse 18, he says, As the Father sent me into the world, so send I you. John 20 verse 21, As the Father sent me, so send I you. Why should you live Caring for people who are lost because God so loved the world that he sent his son to pursue you. In fact, that orientation from selfishness actually not only unclicks a love for other believers and a love for the world around me, but even a love for Jesus himself. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15, Christ died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Everything that is true virtue is empowered by this truth. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If it is true virtue, It is because you grasp and experience God's saving love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So first, I invite you to come to Jesus. Second, I encourage you to let this verse be the empowering ground of all true virtue. But finally, I want you to remember what Jesus did in verse 14 and 15. Just as a serpent was nailed to a cross, so the Son of Man is nailed to one himself. It's interesting that the word one and only son in English is used of Isaac in Hebrews 11. Isaac was not Abraham's only son, but he was his unique one-of-a-kind son. Jesus is God's unique one-of-a-kind son, but his experience is different from Isaac's. Isaac willingly follows Abraham to the top of a mountain, willing to be a sacrifice. And when Abraham's hand is in the air, amazingly in faith, willing to offer his own son, God, the father, stops him and provides a substitute. But that's because God's one-of-a-kind son, Jesus Christ, will be the one who willingly goes to the cross and finishes the sin and the condemnation and the shame that stood against us. So think about this this morning. The light died in darkness to bring us out of it. The son became an outcast so we could become sons. The only person ever who had nothing to hide was literally stripped and exposed 
so that he could cover our hidden shame. The creator who has given life experienced death so that we could be reborn to eternal life. This is God's saving love. Let's pray together this morning. God, our Father, we thank you, Lord, that you love the world. It can be difficult for us to admit, but that is shocking because we are bad. We are in revolt. We have pushed away our Creator. And yet the obstacle to us being saved is a willingness to admit that we have evil works and dark hearts. This morning, then, I ask you to do a supernatural work that only you can. Move those who are condemned already to being saved eternally by moving them to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, by your grace, many of us have Jesus Christ, so our salvation is assured in him. And yet, often, we live as if we don't have confidence that you love us. And we can forget that in the way we treat other people, in the way we ignore the world around us, in the way we respond even to you yourself. So Lord, I pray that you would move the truth that you loved us when we were sinners. And at that time, Christ died for the ungodly so that it becomes the controlling truth of our lives and the empowering ground of our actions. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.